Yeah, I'll go first, I guess. So yeah, I grew up here in Treaty 6. I was born in Prince Albert. I lived on the reserve. I must yeah. be their First Nations till about five. Then we moved to town. I've been living in Saskatoon ever since. When I was little, I knew of the treaties, but they're a really foreign concept to me. Didn't have a really strong understanding. And as I got older, I'd learned about treaty rights from my parents and all that stuff. But I still had a very vague understanding of it all. I knew more about my pre-spirituality more than I knew about treaties. And it wasn't until I got into university that I learned a lot about the treaties and what it means to be an Indigenous person living in Treaty 6 territory. I was born and raised in Saskatoon in Confed on John A. Macdonald Road, ironically. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like growing up, I uh, used to think that that was a street name to be proud of, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's like what little you're taught. Yeah, so my family on my dad's side, my grandpa was born in Little Pine Reserve. He moved up to La Ronge and raised his family there. And my mom is from Mohawk Territory, Akwesasne. But for Treaty 6 Territory, I, I always think of the connection to my grandpa like he lived up north in La Ronge and there's even a street named after him whenever I drive from PA to La Ronge I always think of like how my grandpa had to hike that before there was even roads and it took him like three days <laughs> wow yeah you guys are of a similar generation how would you say your experience is when you reflect on your parents' experience, or maybe if you reflect on young people now? Definitely, I'm very fortunate to be born in the generation that I am. And it seems like every generation after my parents' generation, things have been getting better and better. Baby steps, though, it seems. Like, I never had to go to residential school. My mom did, though. My dad was lucky enough that he didn't have to go to residential school, but his brothers and his sisters did. I'm not really sure. I think it was just the way the laws worked. He lived around Duck Lake or something like that. And my son, I have a son, he's growing up in what should pretty much be a metropolitan paradise compared to what my Muslim or my dad would be growing up in. My dad had, like me, actually, the one thing we both share is that we were both the only Indigenous kids in our class. My dad had to fight lots with non-Indigenous kids growing up. It made him into a tough guy. He was a kind of a bodybuilder. Me, I didn't have to deal with, only a couple times I had to deal with sort of physical violence, but very small, and I mostly got out of the situations. But I did have to deal a lot with exclusion because of my indigeneity. One biggest, like, craziest change that I've seen in my life was that up until grade four, I was taught that Louis Riel was a traitor. And then because of all these indigenous people working to get history right, then in grade five, we found out that he was actually a Canadian hero and he helped start Manitoba and Saskatchewan, right? Mm. So when you think of generational thing like that, it's so different and it was so much worse for all those who came before us. And the earlier you go back, the worse it gets. Yeah, like my generation, I never had to go through residential school and my parents both like avoided it too. They maybe went to day school, but then... My grandpa, he went through the pass system where he had to have a pass to leave the reserve. Yep. Mm -hmm. One thing I just kind of thought of at the time growing up, I never thought anything of it. But 
in my elementary school, me and my friend, who was an, another native kid growing up, we were both put in extra speech therapy classes in our school. So it was like they wanted to get rid of our accent. <laughs> you know what? To tag team on that, you know how you said you're a fake francophone. But the reason why I said I'm a fake Cree is because my mom speaks fluent Cree, right? She was looking out for me in her mind, but she didn't teach me the language so that I wouldn't have an accent so I'd get treated better, which is a huge generational thing. And now in my generation, our elders are like, welcome, you don't know your language. You got to learn your damn language. And it's like, oh, sorry, dude. Like, what am I supposed to do? I would like to, and I I do work at it, but it's like, well, it's just something that my mom kind of had foresight for. And I mean, yeah, I do get treated way better on the phone and by other people than if they do have an accent. Hmm. Me and my mom, we have these deep talks. And one thing that she is carrying with her from those schools and from that time is the ideology that white is right, that white is better, right? She's constantly fighting that in her own everyday life. When we moved to town, she was a little bit wary of who we were hanging out with. She wanted us to hang out with more white kids. She wanted us to participate in white activities. So she's in that constant state of decolonizing herself in her ideologies and her notions of people because of the way that the white suprematism is itself brainwashing, programming. Yeah, and indoctrination a little bit, if you, if you ask me. But that's just my opinion. Absolutely. So what sort of entitlement, arrogance, or stupidity have you witnessed or have you needed to confront from settlers in your life on Treaty 6? Or what kind of attitudes are still a problem? You want to go first, Sean? Uh, sure. I think, well... Growing up, there was definitely a lot of thought that we got a lot of free money (laughs) when really like we got treaty day where we get $5 a year, but people assume we have our bills paid for us and we get all this extra money. And then university too was a big issue. Like I remember it was hard to get funding. There's only so many people per reserve that can go through. But everyone thinks that every First Nations person gets free university and they don't realize how many of them are actually on student loans as well, you know? I think the most problematic attitudes for me are the the types of attitudes that, that believe that why are Indians getting all this stuff? Why do they complain so much? Why do they do this? Because they had lost the war. They think that there was this giant war between settlers and indigenous folks when it wasn't really much of a war. If you look at the chronological events, it was the Europeans came here, they were sick, they were dying, they didn't know how to survive on the land, the indigenous peoples helped them, they developed a fur trade, they became really good friends, they spawned a new race of people, and then somewhere down the road, somebody from Britain or from the Canadian government decided that they wanted to have complete control over the land. If you're treating someone like a brother for so long and they attack you, it's hard to fight back. Traditionally, Indigenous people are peaceful and loving people. So to be assimilated by an entity that you wanted to be friends with and help with, be happy that there's enough of us here left and we should be happy with what we have. I think that's probably one of the most problematic notions that people have in their head. Are media so responsible for perpetuating a lot of those myths? Mm. right down to the western genre in hollywood Mm. could i just continue on with that please yeah like how i was talking about how it's such a big deal to get into university and attend but when i went into university 2005 2006 
it sure made me feel like an outsider with different situations that I found myself in. I was in psychology and there was this one time where these students from upper level classes came to give their surveys to the first year students. And so we were sitting in this room of 200 students and they hand out these surveys. They were doing a study on racism, but they don't really like tell me what I'm about to be looking at. And the survey has all these like general questions. And then all of a sudden there's questions like all native people stink and all native people steal. As a student, I'm just sitting there looking around wondering who's answering these questions like with a yes, you know? And then it just made me feel like super uncomfortable. I ended up confronting the psychology department about it and had like private meetings with them just about how they made me feel as like an indigenous person sitting in a room of 200 people wondering who's answering yes to all indigenous people stink, you know? What the hell? Yeah. I don't know, it was really uncomfortable for me. And then there was another time where I was in a sociology class and we're watching this video about different times in history where indigenous people had clashes with military and stuff. And then all of a sudden they show a couple little clips of the Oka crisis. This is something that is a big deal to me growing up and was a big deal to my family. When the video was over and we were discussing it, they showed clips and the Mohawk warriors are decked out in camouflage and they have rifles. And a girl in the class puts up her hand and she's like, don't you think if they wanted to stick to their old lifestyle, they wouldn't be using camouflage and guns? And then me sitting in the class, I just had an outburst and I was just like, well, what do you expect them to do? Hide in the trees with bows and arrows? Yeah. cause a uproar in the class but it was, it was just one of those moments where you're just kind of singled out almost just by your identity well that notion too is very problematic if natives love their traditions so much why are they participating in our society today that's another problematic thing i have neighbors here where in the complex where i live that are kind of mean to me because i don't upkeep my garden they always are saying well how come you don't care about your garden they never have ever implied that I'm native, so I should, but they always ask me that. And to me, like, tending a garden is such a colonial thing. You know, you uproot the natural earth that's there, you put in your non-indigenous flowers, and then you take care of them and you tend to them and you till the land, you, you do all this stuff just, just to make yourself happy. But an indigenous perspective, to take care of the land, to tend the land, like the land will do it on its own, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. You just got to make sure that we keep the space that's there. That's another problematic ideology that's too prevalent today. The next question that I was going to ask you, I think, could be an excellent target for the feather in some ways, because it's about tearing down monuments of colonialists who have been shown to be white suprematists removing racist names, like recently the removing of the Washington Redskins. It's all still quite problematic, of course, because they're not really removing the name because they've had some kind of reckoning <laughs> where they really feel like they've made a mistake and that this was racist all of these years. No, they're capitulating to some pressure. What we're seeing right now in this moment mass protests and of tearing down monuments. What do you think that this signals? 
John, you go first. I think it's probably the start of a lot of different changes. The whole PC cancel culture has like taken on other causes, you know, like they've been canceling celebrities and now they're canceling team names and stuff like that. With the Redskins name change, like I see people, they do see it as a sign of victory and a sign to keep putting pressure on these organizations. I saw this survey that the Eskimos sent out and it just sounded like they were really trying to sway their audience into voting the right way to keep the name because they were asking questions like if the person answering was even an Eskimos fan or how often they'd watch the game. And one of the questions was, do you think that there's too much cancel culture in today's society? You could just see like these organizations want to hold on to these names. You just want to know like why. <laughs> A lot of people wonder why do you think it's so offensive? I just think if you have these teams and then you just have all their fans in the stands wearing headdresses and chucking tomahawks all disrespectfully, like it doesn't do anything to help the modern view of today's indigenous person. It just keeps everyone stuck in the past. I think there will definitely be a lot more changes to come. Thanks. Yeah. To me, it's a really complex issue. When you look at names like Redskins, Redskin is overtly racist, so that one like definitely has to go. But then you look at other names, like the Blackhawks. That one is named after like a specific tribe. Really, that decision should come down to the people who are being affected by it. It shouldn't be some guy who loves his team. It shouldn't be some indigenous person who's not a Blackhawk talking about Blackhawks. The Cleveland Indians, like if they really wanted to support Indians, they would support an Indian dude from India. That person would be their mascot, right? Not Chief Wahoo, which is incredibly racist. So there are some things out there that are incredibly racist. There's some things out there that borderline honor, but that's really up to the people who it affects, I think. As for the statues, if you want to talk American politics, <laughs> the Confederacy statues, I mean, why would you want to have a statue of a guy who wanted to continue on slavery? That's kind of a really easy one for me. Tougher things for me, and it's echoed in older Indigenous voices, are the ones of John A. MacDonald and our Canadian heroes who made, air quoting, but you can't see me, our land. Removing a statue of John A. MacDonald doesn't really do anything for me. But what does bother me would be somebody who didn't know who John A. MacDonald was, saw the statue, and just read all the good things he did. His terrible history is not on those things. So some of the older indigenous folks are saying, well, keep the statues, but put plaques to all the atrocities that they did. That's something that's more in line with reconciliation. Canada has to come to terms with itself. And getting rid of these statues is kind of superficial. If you keep the statues and tell the whole story, then you have more. People can see these people who aren't Canadian heroes, but definitely a part of Canadian history. And I like Canada, and I like Canadian history. I just want the truth to be told. Yeah. Imagine if they redid a heritage moment for John A. Macdonald, but just really showed the true side. Yeah. <laughs> like, that would be cooler to me. Yeah. We put up new statues of John A. Macdonald doing evil things. It really is an important moment for Canadians if we start to dismantle some of these mythologies around John A. Macdonald. Like, it's interesting that Scotland has recently revoked their recognition of John A. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That was pretty interesting. That was baller, man. Okay, well, let's leap into this question. When we collectively imagine 
a decolonized land? Are we imagining a land with people living together, respectful of difference, and released from containers? Hmm. Elaborate, please. I personally don't think that decolonization is this kind of nostalgia where we need to go back to an older image. And you kind of touched upon this with the Oka standoff. It's more about we need to respect difference. Cultures need to live. We can't assimilate, but we can't say, oh, so you're indigenous, you must behave this way. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, decolonize. It's such a heavy and just huge topic because a lot of the things you're saying <laughs> I, I like and I find could be true. The notion of containers, that's one thing that I have a hard time dealing with because it would be great if, if we weren't restricted to these preconceived notions based on our identities. But at the same time, if you look at history, if you look at the Canadian government, that's how they operated, right? You get these people, you put them in a container, they grow corrupted because they're not used to being in a container. But then how do you remove a container? Our fight with the government is now a part of the Indigenous identity. You know what I mean? Our fight for equal rights is now a part of it. So I don't know if it's about breaking free of container. There's definitely something that we have to do as Indigenous people so we're not always carrying on to past traumas, but also still honoring the tragedies that have come before us. That in itself is so complicated. I've seen what the First Nations government wants to focus on. To them, I think that decolonizing is trying to get back control of our own different systems. Uh, like how they're trying to get back control of child welfare right now. And it has a lot to do with the land and trying to keep it pristine for as long as possible. Yeah, like that would be one thing from the past that should stay the notion of keeping and uh, living in harmony with Mother Earth to be decolonized. You'll have to figure that out for sure. Definitely not going back to loincloths and bows and arrows. That's definitely not what decolonizing is. But learning how to live off the land and having a knowledge of indigenous plants and knowing how to take care of yourself if you're ever in a situation where you can't rely on modern technology, that's probably decolonizing. There's some things I did want to mention. I mean, you asked some questions in the project description. And one of the questions you had asked was, what does Treaty 6 mean today? And initially, my response was, it means I get cheap smokes and gas, and that I don't have to pay taxes, I get free health care, and I get free schooling. Doesn't that seem, if someone who received all that, would be set up for success? Why don't we see so much successes? I believe we don't see those things because, like Sean was saying, they're lies. I do have to pay taxes. I do have to pay for school. I have to pay at the eye doctor. Though, I do get cheap gas and smokes, and that's nice. But that's only available to Indigenous people in Saskatchewan because Indigenous people had to fight the provincial government because they had stolen land away from Indigenous peoples after the treaties were signed. So being in Treaty 6 is supposed to mean that we're in a collective agreement as a family that we're supposed to look out for one another. If you ask me, Indigenous peoples have held that standard for the settlers. When you turn to the settler view, the treaties almost seem meaningless. Our hunters are being tried in courts. Our childcare systems are in a constant battle with the government. And then Canada makes these big, huge pat on the backs like Jordan's principle, but that's still not widely accepted in Saskatchewan. You can see how they could seem meaningless to the average Canadian because the governments have never lived up to them. But to me, when I look at the treaties, they are meaningful. They mean hope. And it is so tough in today's climate 
seeing Canadians that are dealing with our current troubles. They're mad about this lockdown. Dude, how come you can only have empathy for yourself in these situations and you can't see that Indigenous people have been facing real oppressive governments? We know how a bad government works. So if you see Indigenous people participating and keeping yourself safe, you might just need to look a little harder at your own self. Canadians have such a hard time coming to terms with the problems that we're dealing with today. It shows me how resilient Indigenous people are, how loving and forgiving Indigenous people can be. There's no Indigenous extremists. There's yeah. no Indigenous bombings. There's none of this stuff. We sit and we fight in this colonial system that is designed for us to fail, and we still win. As a last question, because of your work with the feather, I did want to put out there as kind of an open question, your own philosophy about how humor can work to raise consciousness, to be an instrument of political discourse. I wonder if you could talk about the project of the feather and your hopes and aspirations for it. I think with the feather, we really love to point out the absurd. <laughs> and play with that and with that comes also a lot of educating we educate ourselves researching this and then we hope that what we put out there can educate some people as well humor is just one of the best ways to get attention i think if you can make a bigot laugh you can maybe make them stop and think for a little bit definitely personally i'm really influenced by Dave Chappelle and some of the race stuff that he did in his first season of his show, where right off the bat in his show, he had like a black KKK guy in there. <laughs> he just like had like, he was just going all out. I feel like that's what we need to do with the feather. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope the feather keeps growing and that we get picked up by APTN or CBC or Netflix and we can expand our production and we could hire writers and we could keep growing and we could become something like The Daily Show. That's like the goal, that's the dream. When it comes to polite conversation, you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion. So then where is the room to talk about politics? The only place for political discourse for me is I've only ever found it being ever useful in comedy or stand-up comedy in The Feather can talk about how we feel and how we feel is funny you find a way to put this notion on its head or, or reveal it for what it is i really hope that like just to echo what sean said that if we do make people laugh hopefully we make them pause and think too at the same time